Christchurch, New Alden, 8th of August 2021. Becky Mills speaking in the series, Hope Amid the Broken Signposts, The Desire for Love. So, in our series, Hope Amid the Broken Signposts, based on Tom Wright's book, Broken Signposts, we've explored justice, beauty, freedom, and spirituality. We all have a longing for justice. Our idea of what's fair seems to be hardwired in us at a very young age. The same with our attraction to beautiful things and our yearning for freedom. We always want to kick over the traces, whatever age we are. And our quest for meaning and purpose occupies our minds throughout our lives. Justice, beauty, freedom and spirituality, which we can all grasp instinctively, lie broken in the world in which we live. Yet we can still hear echoes of a voice. To use Tom Wright's words, when we ponder them, it's as though we're hearing someone calling to us from just around the corner, out of sight. It's almost as if a distant voice is summoning us to be part of the restoration of these broken signposts that are so firmly embedded in human nature. And these broken signposts point to the existence of an everlasting God who embodies justice, beauty, freedom, and the things of the Spirit. And today, I'm going to be talking about our desire for love, which is absolutely fundamental to us as human beings. Yet at the same time, our desire for love can become unhealthy and distorted. It's a broken signpost, but it still points towards the destination of that signpost, which is God. It points towards a God who loves to the utmost. And this both helps us to understand our world the way it is and enables us to contribute afresh to that overflowing love through our own lives. The English language has one word for love, yet many of us know that in the Greek language, for instance, there are at least four words meaning love. There is storge, which is family love through common bonds and a shared history. Remember Ruth's pledge that we heard early on to her mother-in-law who had lost both husbands and sons. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And philia is intimate, committed friendship love. Remember the friendship we heard between David and Jonathan. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Eros is yearning, passionate love. I used to believe that Storge, Philia and Eros were human-based, inferior types of love. And divine love was exclusively agape love, generous, self-giving, sacrificial love. But now I think differently. 
I believe God's love, both within his very being and without, is a blend of all these different types of love. And our relationship with God and with others is characterized by all of them. God is drawn out of himself by ardent love into creation, incarnation, and redemption. And we who are touched by it are inspired to return that ardent love. Think about Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.13. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. These are the words of a true lover whose whole being is completely captured by ardent, all-consuming love. However much we ponder the different aspects of love, we instinctively know that it's a two-way thing. Our desire for love is all about relationship. It's, it's about discovering that in a relationship, we become more fully ourselves. To use Tom Wright's words, it fulfills that need to be part of something larger than ourselves. Something that gives us a sense of coming home. Something in which we find warmth, security, meaning, and delight. Otherwise, we would live in a world threatening to dissolve into meaninglessness. We all know relationship matters, but we all find relationship difficult. We hurt the people we love. Our emotions run away with us and we say and do things we regret. We may become obsessive. We may cling to our grievances and harbour anger and resentment. We may become possessive and controlling or make unreasonable demands on another and deprive them of the freedom to become more fully themselves. Or we can build something durable which is cruelly disrupted by illness or disability. But despite all the brokenness in our relationships, there are glimpses of hope. That's why everyone loves a wedding, despite 42% of marriages ending in divorce. I was at a wedding two weeks ago, and the young couple had written their own vows. To hear them talk about and radiate their all-consuming love for one another really captured my heart. Here is an extract, and the name is changed. Olivia, you are my everything. I love you with my heart, and I promise to care for you and protect you. You turn the bad days into good days, and the good days into incredible days. I promise to be there for you during the tough times, offering a shoulder to lean on, and I will do everything in my power to bring back your beautiful smile. I look forward to creating many more memories with you, and the thought of sharing many special moments together fills me with excitement. I can't wait for what our future has in store, to build a family with you, explore the world with you, and to wake up every morning knowing that I have you, my best friend, by my side. You flood my senses with joy. You are my life, the greatest gift I could ask for. I can't believe how lucky I am, because from today onwards, I get to call you my wife. What inspiring words, aren't they? The ardent, passionate love of two young people starting off their married lives together 
fills us with hope. It confirms the belief that deep, lasting and genuine love exists and we can be part of it. And this is one way of expressing what the Christian faith is all about. And John's Gospel, which Tom Wright focuses on throughout his book, is one of the most profound statements of exactly this. Here we see in a haunting narrative the lengths to which God will go to display his love in action. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever, ever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And behind that we know that God himself exists in relationship. Love is not something, not just something God does, but it lies at the very heart of who God is. And that takes us into the mysterious depths of the Trinity, because God is what he is without the created order. He didn't need to create a world. His love overflows eternally with or without creation. The life of the Trinity is one of shared affection, delight and joy, suggested by these brief words at Jesus' baptism. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God didn't need to create a world to experience relationship, but he chose to do so out of sheer, ardent, overflowing love. To illustrate the outpouring of God's love, Tom Wright takes us to a vast, rain-fed lake high up in the mountains. At the lake's edge is a deep cleft in the rock through which the water rushes at high speed, pouring down the cliff to splash onto the rocks hundreds of feet below, then to be dispersed into many new streams, many channels flowing out to irrigate a wide landscape before eventually returning to the sea. Jesus is the waterfall. The Spirit is the outflowing streams. The Father is the lake, the source, as well as the sea into which all the water flows. But the water is all the same water. This illustration is particularly apt because water is one of John's central images for the outpouring of God's love. All these different streams flowing over the landscape represent love at its best. The rich mutual delight you find in healthy families and friendships, which is always on the move, passing between one person and another, offering welcome, embrace, consolation, encouragement and joy. And this reflects the nature of God's love which flows inwards and outwards between Father, Son and Holy Spirit and out into the world and into our hearts and lives. So we've suggested that our desire for all-encompassing love, for relationship, is a broken signpost but which nevertheless still points to its destination. The perfect relationship love which flows between Father, Son and Holy Spirit and out into the world to mend, heal, and redeem. redeem. 
So having looked at what God is, we're now going to look at what God does to bring us back into a relationship with him, to fulfill our desire for warmth, intimacy, security, meaning, and delight. In my last sermon in this series on beauty, I talked about Jesus being the embodiment of God's beauty. But of course, he is also the love of God in human form. He embodies the living presence of God who comes and pitches his tent among us. To non-believers, it may seem bizarre that God could shrink himself into human form, but it makes perfect sense in the context of first century Judaism. In Psalm 84, the psalmist says about the temple, how lovely is your dwelling place. The creator of the universe has his residence on a a small hill to the southeast of a small city called Jerusalem. If that makes sense, Tom Wright argues, then so does the incarnation. In Genesis, humans are made in God's image. So if God were to become anything, then becoming a human being would be entirely appropriate. There was no image in the Jerusalem temple because the Israelites had been forbidden one. Living human beings are God's image bearers. And Jesus is the perfect expression of this. Jesus himself identifies the temple with his body. In John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And John adds, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus embodies the living presence of God. He is the word made flesh. He is what divine love looks like. Jesus laid down his life in utter love for his friends and followers. He loved to the utmost. This is the thread that runs through the entire gospel of John. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. John is asking us to believe that Jesus is the true reflection and embodiment of God himself. We witness Jesus' ardent love for the Father, his deeply emotional involvement in the lives of others, whether they were sick, tormented, or marginalized, the deep attachments he formed which inspired utter devotion, and the self-giving love he lavished on all. And this propels us forward to the foot washing after the Last Supper in John 13. Jesus took off his clothes, wrapped a towel around himself and poured water into a bowl, washed his disciples' feet and dried them tenderly with the towel he was wrapped in. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And the purpose of this acted out parable was to make his people clean. The foot washing points to the ultimate act of self-giving self-humiliating love on a cross which makes us his followers clean 
And like the temple itself, fit places for the Holy Spirit to come in and dwell and spill over in love to those we have a relationship with in the world in which we live. The story John tells is a story which fulfills our desire for relationship and paints a picture of God's love in action that looks back at us. Perfect, overflowing love exists and points beyond our broken and messed up loves, our obsessions and our self-absorption. To quote Tom Wright, it points to the reality that as image bearers, we are made for love, made to find ourselves in and through love, the love we give and the love we receive. So how can we apply this more specifically to our lives? Firstly, restore the freshness of ardent love for God, that love for the Father that Jesus exemplified. Jesus always took time out to be with his heavenly Father. Seek God's presence daily through prayer from the deepest, innermost part of yourselves. Yearn for his presence. Do you remember the excitement when you first became a Christian or made an adult commitment? Did you ever long for a time of prayer because your great love waited for you there? Did you take a small Bible around everywhere with you so that you could soak up his presence in a spare moment? Did you ever sing with the psalmist, there is nothing I desire besides you? Every time you go to a service, there's an opportunity to meet with the very heart of God and be touched in return. Reach out to him and expect to receive from him. Read devotional works about God's love to inspire you. Restore the vitality of that all-consuming love you once felt, just like the love you felt for your spouse when you first made your marriage vows. This leads to my second point. Loving others becomes easier when we feel loved ourselves. If we don't feel surrounded by something larger than ourselves, something that gives us a sense of coming home, something in which we find warmth, security, meaning and delight, it's hard to love. We become absorbed by our messed up broken loves, our obsessions and our failures. But if we feel the ardent love of God, then it's easier to love others. True love is given from a heart that is filled with the love of God. We are only able to love anyone else because God first loved us. We are only able to give freely to others what we have received freely from him. Know the depth of love and abundance of grace that flows from the self-giving love of the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Only then can we love others ardently and self-sacrificially. Thirdly, remember that love is a gift. Worldly love will always be conditional, reciprocal, and based on transient feelings. But love which flows out of God's love for us is never a transaction, a payment for services rendered or promised, but always a gift, an everlasting gift, an unconditional gift. True love is self-giving love. 
It demands something of us, not of others. It's more concerned about giving than receiving praise or thanks. It's more concerned with the welfare of others than of self. Ask God's Spirit to fill you. Once you have, he will love others through you in ways you never imagined possible. Then you'll be able to love as Jesus tells us to in John 13, 34 to 35. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Finally, John is adamant that the love embodied and dramatically lived out by Jesus comes to us through the victory over the forces of darkness and distortion won on the cross. The resurrection and new creation are God's great affirmation of his love for us and for the whole of the created order. It's that echo of a voice calling to us from just around the corner, out of sight. A whole new world is beckoning to us and summoning us to be part of a new community based on ardent, overflowing, self-sacrificial love. <laughs>